want to get talking again about uh, where we left off last week. I tried to do the spiritual thing and give you guys a little bit of time just because of the Super Bowl, but now I'm going to take all that time I was going to take last week back. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to have some fun tonight. But I, I want to continue talking about this concept that we've moved into, which is our identity as kings and priests. Our identity that we live in as being king priests is how it would be said in Scripture. And the reality is, is we're normally in church, we're really good at the part of, if you'll get saved, you know, we'll work on the salvation part and you're saved. And then we get really good at, here's what happens possibly after you die. And there seems to be more and more gaps of what life is like in the middle and what our existence is supposed to be in the middle of that. And at the end of the day, it seems culturally we're in a place um, as a nation and honestly as a, what feels like a planet where people are more and more in wonder about the reason for their own existence, the purpose of them having a being, the person of them being on earth, their designation, their reason for just existing. And at the end of the day, if we can't offer a solution to that, then we're failing to be who we are called to be, right? Which is a city set upon a hill, something that cannot be hidden, but a solution to some of these answers. And the reality of our current state of existing is this reality of seeing ourselves as king priest. Um, I want to just do a, a, a couple minute review of where we where we were last week, because we started talking about this idea first, before we can understand that we're king priests, we begin to talk about what exactly is a kingdom. And we've started this with trying to get a better understanding of what exactly is God's kingdom, right? Because what you've been invited to, if you read scripture, and I've said this multiple times, but it is the truth, there is no scripture in the New Testament where Jesus talks about going to heaven. There is no scripture in the New Testament where Jesus talks about your goal being going to heaven. What Jesus offers is he offers an invitation to repent, right, which is metanoia, to change the way that you think, to actually turn around and have a complete new concept of your brain and think a different way and accept that the kingdom of God is actually at hand. Jesus never spoke about some cosmic place way over there. Rather, he talked about that what was happening was happening right here and right now, right? He tells the disciples at one point, the, uh, a few of the Pharisees come up to ask him about who's married in heaven and who's this and, and when, when will the kingdom of God come? And they say, when will the kingdom of God come? And he says, it cannot be seen by noticeable signs, but he eventually says that the kingdom of God right now is actually among you and in your midst, Jesus is giving us this declaration that the kingdom of God is a lot less geographical and more about actually a person. And the kingdom of God is actually the personhood of who Jesus is, right? And so that sounds very mystical. That sounds very hard to define and bring to ourselves. So we've given as a family this definition of what the kingdom of God is, right? We talked about it last week. The kingdom of God is the range of his effective will. The kingdom of God is the range of his effective will. What that means is the kingdom of God is wherever someone who is a part of the kingdom is doing the work that God wants them to do, that is where the kingdom of God is. So when Jesus said things, when Jesus says things like the kingdom of God is actually amongst you, he's doing the work of the Father, which means the kingdom is right there. 
when we see uh, the 70, Jesus sends out 12. They come back. Then he sends out 72. When the 72 get back, there's this scripture that we've often taken as Jesus talking about sometime before Genesis. But the reality is there's this scripture where Jesus says when the 72 get back, he says, while you were out ministering, I saw the Satan fall out of the sky, be cast out of the sky like a lightning bolt to the ground. This scripture is not some ancient cosmology look at the fall of the devil. Rather, this is Jesus saying that while the kingdom of God was being spread, I actually saw the forces of darkness, the, the Satan, the accuser, I actually saw him fall to the ground out of his power and out of his reign as the kingdom of God was being spread. So this is what the kingdom is, right? This is, this is our, our place. And so when we understand that the kingdom of God is the range of his effective will and that the kingdom of God becomes Jesus, we have to begin to understand and have a reality of what is our place now in that. If this is what it is and this is who it is, what becomes our place in that? And I want us to look at Romans eight seventeen to start tonight. Romans 8:17 Paul says this he says and since we are his true children we qualify to share in all his treasures for indeed we are heirs of God himself and since we are joined to Christ we also inherit all that he is and all that he has we will experience being co-glorified with him provided that we accept his sufferings as our own okay so first understand this a part of what all Jesus has is his mission to bring the kingdom to earth. So if we share in all that he has and all that he is, the reality of that is we share in his mission, okay? And oftentimes when we read scriptures like this, we're excited about the first part. We get to the end and immediately shame begins to set in because we're going, what does it mean sharing his sufferings? How do I, should I whip myself? Should I be upset that I'm who I am, should I be sad? And the reality, if you look at the scripture in the Greek laid out, it, it basically what Paul is trying to say that if the opportunity for suffering comes, accept it. Right? So Paul is saying that we will experience being co-glorified if when the opportunity comes, we share in his suffering. Right? And so the reality is it's not something to be looked upon right now with much shame for us because we're currently in a state of just not really any persecution. We can worship freely. We can pray freely. Life is kind of more free for us. But if the day comes when meeting like this is illegal, the call will be given out of Romans 8 is, will you follow knowing this could happen? Okay, so it's not a place to walk in shame, but rather a reality to look to if something were to come up. So let's not move into this idea that we're less than because of this. Okay, so we 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 finished last week on this idea that what exactly is the role of a king priest? We see through Scripture now these things at, at one point in the Old Testament. We see these things very separate. They live in their own world. You have priests and you have kings. There's very few examples of both connected. We're going to talk a little bit more about those tonight. But last week we talked mainly about the idea of David. When the Ark of the Covenant's being transferred into the temple, we see David actually put on the priestly robes, which weren't 
allowed by him, but put on the priestly robes. And as a king operated under the authority of a priest and brought the Ark of the Covenant or brought the presence of God into the temple, right? We see this very loose kind of prophetic example of what an Old Testament look would be like at a king priest. This person that carries a dual role in his life. And so what is that role now relinquished to us? And the role of a king priest is broken down like this, dominion and presence. Our role as king is dominion, and our role as priest is presence, okay? As kings, we are called to bring the cosmos into order, not by over-authority, but rather through serving, by the way that we are husbands, by the way that we are fathers, by the way that we are mothers, by the way that we are daughters, by the way we operate in our businesses, by the way we raise our kids, by the way we take care of our finances, by the way we act towards others, by the way we love others, by the way we serve others, by the way we hopefully through the work of the Holy Spirit begin to heal and take care of others. This actually brings the cosmos in itself into order. Because what Yahweh started in the garden in Genesis, and I've said this a million times, but what Yahweh started in the garden in Genesis, he intends on finishing through us. It wasn't a failed project. It was a project put on delay. And Jesus' announcement through the cross is that the project is back. We're back to finishing what we started, right? In Genesis, it says, it says to be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion. In Hebrew, this word dominion actually closely, and I don't, I don't love this, but it's just reality. It actually is related to the idea of through warfare, taking over land. Let's not do that. Let's not start a war or nothing. We're not the crusaders here. But this is how they would have viewed this idea that there are, as Paul's language would be, principalities and forces of darkness. And the idea is a waging of war by how we serve and love. And then our tied role with that is priest. The role of the priest, whether it be Levitical, whether it be King Melchizedek, no matter who it is, or David, the role of the priest has always been to minister to the heart of the Lord. And so now we see in our own lives this duality that we're supposed to live in where in our regular lives or in our day-to-day, we carry the vocation of king. And as we gather together, as a kingdom family, we see this role of priest. And even in our homes, as we gather with our family, we see this role of priest of ministering to the heart of the Lord. I think sometimes it can get wrapped up in being very cheesy and lame. And I think social media has had a role in that. But at the end of the day, me and Bailey have individual and we have together times in the presence. Um, we don't film them, but we have these times together a whole other thing. We have, we have these times together that we don't always post online because does that really count? But anyway, I won't get into it. But the reality is we have these times together in a part where what we are operating out of is our ability and hope to minister to the heart of the Lord. To do that and then through that opening, hopefully receive. But at the end of the day, if I walk away from my alone time daily with the Lord and the only thing that took place was I ministered to Him, I have accomplished my goal. And oftentimes, most people end up 
not failing, but unable to maintain any type of spiritual rhythm, routine, or disciplines in their life, moving in the spiritual formation, because the reality is every time they're alone in their, in their room with a cup of coffee in the morning, in the evening, whenever that is, we leave not really feeling any different, right? That one time we do, we, we start amping ourselves up, where now I'm going to do two hours a day, and I'm going to do three hours a day. But if we don't leave that situation in tears, changed, in deep revelation, we leave, you know, unencouraged. But the reality is the goal is to minister to the heart of the Lord. The goal is to be in union with him. And that often, not unfortunately, but that often does not always lead to an emotional response inside of me. It can and that's great, and that happens. And oftentimes, we'll go through seasons as people where I get alone with the Lord, and before I can crack something open, I'm crying. <laughs> that's beautiful. But the reality is, is that our relationship to the Holy Spirit is not one built on emotion because oftentimes our emotion loves to bring our preferences to the table. So when interacting with the Holy Spirit through my priesthood, if I'm looking for emotion out of what I'm trying to do or process, oftentimes what I'm bringing is, this is how I want you to talk to me. This is how I want it to go. This is how long I want it to be. This is how long I want to cry. And this is what I want to walk away being free from. And what I do is I present myself to him, but I also present my preferences. Because my emotions untamed will lead to only living out of my preferences. This is how we end up with a lot of our own um, struggles from leadership to anybody else in the world of morality and sexuality. Is that I'm, I'm oftentimes, especially for males, I'm so um, controlled and enraged by my emotions that I actually let them dictate and set my preferences. And if my preferences aren't being met, I'll go find a way to meet them somewhere else. Say law. Uh, but uh, let that be with you. I bless you with that. But um, let's, I want us to understand that this idea of dominion and presence is the great call that I think all of us in our hearts are looking for and desiring. I talked about this last week, but when I was a kid, especially growing up as a pastor's kid, like every week, if a special speaker came, guess who was getting a prophetic word? I was. Guess who was brought up on stage? I was. Guess who wanted to blow their brains out? I was. Guess who every person told was going to be the next, pa I mean, they were right, but guess who everyone told was going to be the next guy? I was. And right, and so my whole life, you're, and for most of us who go to, especially if you've been to a youth camp, the whole idea of a youth camp was to go and find your calling. You know, you're either going to be an evangelist or a missionary or a worship pastor or a youth pastor. Then hopefully if one of those panned out enough, maybe you could become an associate pastor, get a little money in your pocket. Then maybe a senior pastor, who knows, right? This is kind of the avenue that we've seen. We've all looked for our great calling in life when the reality is our calling in life is this idea of dominion and presence. And our vocation often falls within this. But because we've been so ministry focused vocationally as believers, often this is why we failed in any other area of our life because if I feel like I'm called to business, that's something separate than kingdom work. Right? 
If I'm in business, that's something separate. If I'm a teacher, that's something separate. Jesus in ministry is over here. I'm over here. If I'm in logistics or if I do cosmetology, whatever it may be, all those things are segregated into this circle and I'm segregated as a minister into this circle, right? Ministry is only, the only vocational ministry is done in here. But that only happens when our view of what we're doing here is the substance of everything that we are in Christianity. But you're actually called as a king and priest or queen and priest. Okay. Trying to get everybody involved there, but it's fine. I'll just stick to king and priest. It sounded weird coming off my tongue anyway. Okay, queens, here we go. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm just joking. It feels like a lot. But uh, the reality is this, is that vocationally, you are called to reign and rule and bring dominion. The reality of if you were to go to the tap room, uh, which is downtown, which is Burt's Bar, which is an incredible place to go, Fountainhead Tap Room, woohoo. If you were to go there and see him working, half the time he's getting stuff ready, the, the other half he's casting a demon out of somebody or talking somebody off a ledge or pushing somebody away from depression or it's like, geez, take a break, Bert. Relax, Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. He's not that great. But um, the reality is, is that his business although not ministry-focused vocationally, is bringing this order to the cosmos because as you walk through the doors, there is an amount of presence there that won't allow you to leave like you came in. And this is a totally new way of looking at life, but this is how the early church would have saw existing. Paul's vocation as a tent maker did not stop because of his calling. Rather, he saw it as an avenue to reach those who could not be reached by the church in the house. And when our vocation lines up with our role as king and priest, our lives begin to become not so monotonous and miserable because we see a greater charge to who we are and who we're called to be. Good? Awesome. Still got a bunch of time, so we're good. So let's look at 1 Peter 2, and, uh, 2 um, 7 through 10. This is our our text we read that Katie read so beautifully. And um, this is really the centerpiece uh, of what Peter's trying to say in 1 Peter. He's trying to, he's opening this whole um, start of this thing, understanding who Jesus is. And then he brings us to this conclusions. He says, as believers, you know his great worth. Indeed, his preciousness is imparted to you. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected and discarded has now become the cornerstone and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock to trip over. They keep stumbling over the message because they refuse to believe it. And this they were destined to do. But you are God's chosen treasure. Ready? Here it comes. Priests who are kings, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light, and now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. For at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time you knew nothing of God's mercies because you hadn't received it yet, but now you are drenched with it. This is the idea, a nation set apart. 
Paul uses this language in Colossians, that you've actually become a heavenly colony. When we think of colonization, I know it has a lot of negative connotations to it just with history. But at the end of the day, when people were coming to colonize America, they were bringing over at the time British concepts, British ways, British business, British commerce to some place where it did not exist and cultivating it there. This is the idea that Paul and Peter are trying to get across to us, is that there is actually a different way to do life. Jesus would say it like we've said before, like this, repent. Repent, once again, metanoia, is not about our ability to be illgalic or shameful. It, there is a, a part of repenting of our sins and telling the Lord who we were. But the reality of repentance, metanoia, is about the ability to change the way I see and think, to do a complete flip of my understanding of actually existing. This is repentance. Is oh, I thought marriage was like this. How do you define marriage now? Ah, ah. I thought finances was like this. How do you define finances? Ah, I thought success looked like this. I thought materialism meant this. I thought being satisfied meant this. And the reality is the Lord is trying to not simply just create good people, but actually create people who actually expand ourselves to those around us and, and colonize whole areas. These are cities set on a hill whose light cannot be covered. And this reality comes out of our own understanding that we are kings and we are priests. I love the, the, the word that N.T. Wright uses to describe believers is that we are image bearers, right? We see first this idea of being an image bearer through the process of seeing the temple in different sections throughout the Old Testament, okay? So first we see the temple or the presence of God. That's what the temple really is, or the tabernacle is just the presence of God. First, it's stationary. We see it, sorry, some ice in my mouth. I'll get there. First, we see it in the garden, right? So we see this outer court as the Garden of Eden, the inner, or the garden, the inner court is Eden itself, right? Genesis says that there was a garden and in the garden, or there was a place called Eden and in Eden, God placed a garden. So Eden is the outer court. The garden is the inner court and the tree of life represents the holy of holies. It is this look at the temple before the tabernacle or anything else came to be. But the hard thing, and this is why Adam had to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day is it's stationary. It does not move, it's permanent. It has one place. If you want the tree of life, you have to go here. It doesn't go where you are. We see the same thing happen in the first temple period before the, Babylon, before the Babylonian um, exodus, right? David builds or, or Solomon builds David's temple. Fire comes down. If you want the presence of God, you got to go there. That's where it's at. That's its location. For a while, though, during the exodus, we see it become mobile. We see the tabernacle come. 
And basically, and this is a prophetic sign for those of you that love those. The reality is, is wherever Israel is, that's where the presence of God is. Wherever Israel goes, that's where the presence of God is. And the first thing Israel does as they move from encampment to encampment to encampment is begin to reset up the tabernacle, the temple, and create this place. And that way, anyone going by when they saw it would know that's where the Lord is. And then Jesus and Peter and Paul bring this even deeper revelation, which is wild, that the temple has now moved. And the reason during the second temple period, when the temple was rebuilt after the return from Babylonian exile, the reason the presence of God never returned to the temple is because it was actually moving somewhere else. It was actually moving into you and into me. And we have seen now this example in the Old Testament brought to its completeness that, yes, wherever the people of God is, that's where the temple of God is. That's where God's presence is. Not because there is a place, but because there is a people group. Because there is a person. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you realize that together you have become God's inner sanctuary? And that the Spirit of God makes His permanent home in you. Now God's inner sanctuary, we would know, the inner sanctuary would be the Holy of Holies. That is where the actual presence of God dwelt. Now, here's what's wild. There was only one people group allowed into the presence of God. It was the Levitical priest. But now you have become a priest. And instead of you entering into the presence of God, which you can do, the reality is the presence of God now lives within you through his spirit. I know it sounds simplistic, but I promise you it's better than that. And the reality is, is the, the call of Adam and Eve when God says we will make them in our image is that they will become image bearers, representatives of someone else. We talked about this last week, right? If, if Bo here on the front row starts running around, going crazy, throwing stuff, screaming, hitting Brian, it, it'd be a fair fight. I think Bo would win. But hitting Brian, the reality is this, is that we really wouldn't look at Bo. Because Bo's, are you two? Yes? Okay, thank you. Bo's two. So we really wouldn't look at Bo and care. Oh, thank you. You holding it up? Two. Thank you. You're fantastic. We wouldn't look at Bo. We'd actually look at Braden. And we'd say, what the heck is Braden doing? Why didn't he get off the microphone, Mr. American Idol, and take care of his kid? Right? That's what we'd all be thinking in the moment. We get it. You're a big worship leader. Now take care of your child. And the reality is this, is the reason we're looking at Braden is because Bo is oftentimes an image bearer representative of who Braden is and who the hasty household is. And every time Bo does something, the reality is it represents Braden. Growing up as a pastor's kid in a, this town's gotten bigger, but it's still very small. There was this uncanny ability that every time I did something bad, someone in our church was nearby. <laughs> All the time. You can ask Adam. He was mostly with me every time I did something bad. <laughs> we could go streaking through Walmart, which I'm not going to say we did or not did. But that could happen, and people in the church, I'd get a call, or my dad would wake me up the next morning and be like, hey, what would you do yesterday? Oh, God. 
And the reality is, and this is a hard burden oftentimes, why you see pastor's kids struggling so much is there's this thing that lives inside of you that you not only represent your father, but you actually represent a church. That's hard. That's really hard on a kid. But you realize this weight of being an image bearer. And this is what what Paul is trying to get across. And we're about to really dive into Hebrews here in a second. Um, This is just the introduction. But um, the writer of, of, I know, Merry Christmas. This is just us getting started. But the writer of Hebrews, as we're about to get into it, is trying to pound this into our brain. Paul's trying to pound this into our brain that you've actually returned to being the visible, tangible representative of God to your circles of influence. When we say circles of influence, we mean our families, people in our work, places around us, things that we have a voice in. You've actually become the image bearer in that area. And that is not simply about what you say, but it's simply about how you live your life, how you bring dominion. The idea of righteous sonship, the idea of beloved identity, this reality of being righteous as God, which we know righteousness is the kind of usine, to be put in the state one ought to be in, to become who you've been designed to be, which is as righteous as God, which means as much as God is God, you are you. The whole point of that is to be able to go in all the areas of your own influence and be the image bearer of who Christ is. You are the representative. You can be the author of peace or you can be the author of confusion. This matters so much in our um, theological journey of understanding not just our purpose, but even a greater level of our own soteriology because as the writer of Hebrews would say, understanding God's role or Jesus's role, I should say, as the royal king priest and our role as king priest is actually the sign of maturity for the believer. So let's crack into Hebrews. Um, We're going to be going through a lot of Hebrews tonight. Um, And so I, I could go through the like chapters three through seven, but I figure we all didn't want to be here all night, so I'm going to jump around. But I encourage you to read um, read through Hebrews uh, yourself. I just don't. We just don't have the time to get to all of it. But we're going to start in Hebrews three. We're going to look at twelve through fifteen first. It says this: So search your hearts every day, my brothers and sisters, and make sure that none of you has evil or unbelief hiding within you, for it will lead you astray and make you unresponsive to the living God. This is a time to encourage each other to never be stubborn or hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we are mingled with the Messiah. I want you to think about that. For we are mingled with the Messiah. If we will continue unshaken in this confident assurance from the beginning until the end, For again, the scriptures say, if only today you would listen to his voice, don't make him angry by hardening your hearts as you did in the wilderness rebellion. Now, this letter is to a group of Jewish believers. So when he says in the wilderness like you did, he's talking to Jews, right? Hebrews, the Jews. And I want us to start here, and it's not going to make a lot of sense with where we're going, but it will as we keep going down. First is, the thing I want us to see is that In this scripture, in the beginning, evil and unbelief are actually attached together. 
It says in, in Brian Simmons' translation, it says evil or unbelief. But in the um, English Standard Version, it actually says evil, unbelieving hearts. And in the New Living Translation, it says evil and unbelieving. Oftentimes in the New Testament, anytime we see evil, we oftentimes see the attachment of unbelief. Because the greatest form of evil that you can actually live out of is the unbelief in who God is and in the unbelief of who you are. Evil and unbelief are synonymous with each other in Scripture. And he points that out as he gets to the end because he says this. He says, don't make him angry by hardening your hearts as you did in the wilderness rebellion. What did they do in the wilderness rebellion? They stopped believing consistently over and over and over again in God doing what he said he would do, right? He brings, he brings you know, uncrustables from the sky and fire by night and clouds by day and Moses goes up for 10 seconds up a mountain and it turns into this big satanic orgy in like half a minute. And he comes back down and says, what the heck's going on down here? Right? And there's this consistent reality that people in the Exodus go through where they believe the Lord and then they quit believing in the Lord and they believe in the Lord and they quit believing in the Lord and they go back and forth and back and forth. Even to the point where they're so comfortable in where they are, even though just over the Jordan is the promised land, they go, we'll stay here. We'll just relax here. This is fine. And they constantly live in what is defined as evil, but what the evil is is unbelief in who God said he was and where he would take them. And as we've talked about this before, I wrote about it the other day, the greatest enemy of your soul has nothing to do with the devil and has everything to do with your own unbelief. Everything in life would be solved, I promise you, if you fully believe that God loves you as much as he actually does. If you want to see people freed from the demonic, if you want to see cancer wards emptied, if you want to see hospitals closed down, the challenge we're facing is walking into the fullness of who God says we were. Because if God, if Jesus says through salvation you're a new creation, then the reality is there must be something missing on my part, not his. And so belief is actually the fullness of what we're called into, to believe. Paul would say it like this in Romans 12, that you need to be renewed inside of your mind. Because he goes on to say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Right? We've all, we've all got all the new updates to the Bible. We've got rid of the, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We know that's not actual scripture. Right, but we've moved into the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And this is the renewal of our minds that if we could become radicalized in the understanding that maybe Jesus made us like him. Maybe he just did. And fall into the full belief of that, we change everything. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because he says, he says here, and, and it's I think it's so perfectly laid out. He says, for we are mingled with the Messiah or one with the Messiah, if you have the ESV. And then he says, if we will continue unshaken in this confident assurance from the beginning until the end, our confidence is actually found in the reality that we are mingled or one with Christ. We've talked about this before. How would the early church have described the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one and being separate? They would use the term the perichoresis, 
right? Three people in one. And how they would say it or see it is that this, is that God's holding hands with Jesus and Jesus is holding hands with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's holding hands with God and they're doing this together in a circle. And they're moving so fast that maybe one second you're seeing God, one second you're seeing Jesus, and one second you're seeing the Holy Spirit, and you're going, who is it? And yes, it's all three. You got it. And the invitation of Scripture is our invitation into this entanglement that they have to be caught up in this thing with them, to be mingled as one, to be found in Christ, as Romans would say. And so let's move on to Hebrews 4. Because the writer, and I want to lay this out as the writer of Hebrews is trying to because he's laying out this structural narrative that that he's building upon chapter by chapter. Sorry. Devil's trying to take my voice away. No, I'm just kidding. We don't believe like that. But um, the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to build this narrative chapter after chapter, building upon these precepts and these ideas to bring it to the whole crescendo, right? So that's what he's doing. So we're going to keep going through this. This is Hebrews 4. This is 14 through 16. He says, so then we must cling in faith to all we know to be true. For we have a magnificent king priest, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who rose into the heavenly realm for us and now sympathizes with us in our frailty. He understands humanity, for as a man, right, kenosis, our magnificent king priest was tempted in every way just as we are and conquered sin. This is the most important part. So now we draw near freely, and boldly to where grace is enthroned to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. Okay? So first, the writer of Hebrews is showing that Jesus is the ultimate king priest above the Levitical order, above everything else. Why? Because of what the early church would call kenosis. This is the idea that Jesus stripped himself of his divinity, put on the, the clothes of humanity, and operated as he did on earth as a man with the power of the Holy Spirit. And through this, through this ability to take on flesh, actually conquered sin and death, which means he becomes our ultimate king priest. He does this because, as we see here, we now know that he offers us through this the free gift of coming to him boldly, freely, but boldly, to the throne of grace. And as we know, grace is not, um, what's the best way to say it? Grace, at the end of the day, is an empowering statement and idea. It is not this idea of simply just moving through life in the process of grace, but it's actually that grace empowers us to be like Christ. It is an empowering thing. It is an empowering word. Grace is the ability to walk into Christ and be drenched with mercy to act as an image bearer on behalf of Christ. And this idea is that we are brought in freely into this through our faith in in Jesus, okay? 
And so this is what he's trying to get across. Let's move on to Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. And like I said, there's some stuff in here I'm not missing because it doesn't go with what I'm saying, but just because if we're here for a couple hours, everyone will probably start writing. And so I'm, I'm trying to get through it as fast as I can by going section by section, or section by section. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10 says this. During Christ's days on earth, he pleaded with God, praying with passion and with tearful agony that God would spare him from death. And because of his perfect devotion... His prayer was answered and he was delivered. But even though he was a wonderful son, he learned to listen and obey through all his sufferings. And after being proven perfect in this way, he has now become the source of eternal salvation to all those who listen to him and obey. For God has designated him as a king priest who is over the priestly order of Melchizedek. A lot here. So we're going to stop again. First is, there are two interpretations of the first section of this section of Scripture. I prefer the latter. And it is this. I don't believe that when Jesus was alive on earth, prophesying for three years that he was going to die on a cross, which is what he was telling everybody, I don't believe while he was doing that, when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he started to get, you know, scared feet, and started going, Lord, um, I've changed my mind. Just make me a false prophet. I just don't want to do this. Change my mind. I'll go start a carpentry business. I'll, you know, I'll offer great sales. That way it's, you know, super kingdom-like. I don't believe this was the process, right? If you read Dr. Simmons' commentary on uh, this idea in Hebrews um, 5, it's really beautiful. And this is what I believe what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. When Judas gets the coins from the Sanhedrin, from the Pharisees, and that passing of money goes from the Pharisees into the hands of Judas, is the beginning, that is the, um, that is the uh, act of treason that begins what will become this idea of Jesus suffering for all of humanity, right? We see it in the garden because it says... Judas is getting the money, and Jesus is in the garden. He actually begins sweating with, with water and blood. We know this is a real medical condition. This is not just something spiritual. This is a real medical condition where someone is under so much distress that they're literally beginning to seep blood out of their own body. Okay? This is intense. What, what is the belief of that? The belief is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus begins to take on all of the sin and death and decay of humanity, it starts internally. So when Judas gets past the money from, from the Pharisees, Jesus begins to take all the things internally that will happen and is happening to humanity. Cancer, depression, anxiety, liver disease, polio, you name it, ALS, it doesn't matter. And Jesus is in this extreme, extreme pain. And, I, and Jesus is beginning the process of going, I think I might die. <laughs> like I've got all of humanity's junk inside of me. I'm about to die. And so Jesus says, will you spare me from this rod? Right? This is predominantly in Luke, but it's, it's in all of them. 
Will you spare me from death and spare me from this rod? Is not Jesus going, I've changed my mind on Calvary. It's Jesus going, hey, if you don't help me, I'm gonna die before I can get to the cross and finish this thing, right? And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says this. During Christ's days on earth, he pleaded with God, praying with passion and with tearful agony that God would spare him from death. And because of his perfect devotion, his prayer was answered and he was delivered. We know that when Jesus does this, when we read the gospels, it says an angel comes to tend to Jesus, right? That's what the, that's what the gospels say, is that an angel came to tend to Jesus. This is not Jesus's rejection, making himself a false prophet throughout all four gospels and just changing his mind. Rather, this is Jesus saying, I need to finish the whole thing. I need to take all of sin and I need to take all of death. And so because of that, I, I'm going to need the Holy Spirit here to help me get to the finish line because everything is starting to tear me up inside. This is a total change, I think, of how we should view this. I don't think Jesus was walking around for three years going, I'm gonna die on a cross just to get to the end and go, uno reverse card. But anyway, um, we're going to keep going. We're going to look at, uh, go to verse 11 through 14. It says, we have much to say about this topic, and this topic being that Jesus is over the order of King Melchizedek. We have much to say about this topic, although it is difficult to explain because you have become too dull and sluggish to understand. For you should already be professors instructing others by now. But instead, you need to be taught from the beginning the basics of God's prophetic oracles. You're like children still needing milk and not yet ready to digest solid food. For every spiritual infant who lives on milk is not yet pierced by the revelation of righteousness. Pierced by the revelation of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, whose spiritual senses perceive heavenly matters, and they have been adequately trained by what they've experienced to emerge with understanding of the difference between what is truly excellent and what is evil and harmful. The writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us this idea of priestly hierarchy that Jesus now reigns over all priestly orders, including the one of King Melchizedek. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but um, in the same way, we have a bunch of lure about things in our lives and, and ghosts and... Uh, you know, Wolfman, whatever it may be. There was a lot of stuff in the first and second temple literature about who King Melchizedek was. It was it's, it's as much of a mystery now as it was back then. And there were thousands of ideas and concepts. This to them was like, you know, this to them felt like a ghost. And so there's this reality that the writer of Hebrews is saying, I know this is hard. But the reason you can't even understand or begin to perceive this is because, one, you don't understand the beginning of God's prophetic oracles, which is the writing of the prophets prophesying and giving prophetic words that Jesus would come and that Jesus would be who he was. And the second aspect is it's because you have not yet been pierced by the revelation of righteousness. We've talked a lot about this, so I won't spend a ton of time. But the reality is, our inability to perceive our own standing as righteous is a sign of our own immaturity in our faith. 
because you have not yet been pierced by your own understanding of who you are, how can you perceive who God is and who God is making the world? He says, but the, the spiritually mature, they perceive heavenly, or heaven and kingdom are always synonymous with each other in, in, in the New Testament. They perceive heavenly or kingdom matters. Their perceptions are awakened to the reality of the kingdom realm. They see something different, not because they're better, but because they have a perception of who they are. Right? We see it in, in Romans. I see some blank faces. I'll, I'll read it really fast. Let me get there. It's not in the notes, so if you have the notes, um, it's not going to be in there. Okay. This is Romans 5, real fast for those who think I'm lying. Um, our faith in Jesus, Romans 5, verse 1, our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and he now declares us flawless in his eyes. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, has done for us. And we get oftentimes hiccuped on this idea of being as righteous as God because oftentimes righteousness for us is a sign of equality. And righteousness has nothing to do with equality. It has everything to do with identity. And the same way where righteousness is to be in the state that one ought to be in, in the same way God is fully God, through Jesus, he has made you fully you. Who you've been designed to be is made full in your faith in Jesus. Good? Awesome. It is, um, it is the piercing of this revelation the reality of this place in our identity that brings us into maturity in Christ. And the mature things is to be able to understand Jesus as our king priest. Someone's getting it in the back. Hallelujah. All of Hebrews 4, all of Hebrews 5 are leading up to this idea. And so this idea is if there are heavenly matters which are above what is the basics, the question becomes, what are the basics? What are the basics of what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Let's go to Hebrews 6. This is 1 through 3. This is a couple verses after 5. And he's bringing it into a conclusion here of what the basics are. He says, now is the time for us to pr progress beyond the basic message of Christ and advance into perfection. The foundation has already been laid for us to build upon. Here it is. Turning away from our dead works to embrace faith in God. Teaching about different baptisms. Impartation by laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so with God's enablement, we will move on to deeper truths. This is the foundation that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us past. First is that repent from your sins. Change the way you think. Change away from the message of the law and move into the message of faith, which is your perfectioning through Christ Jesus. This is the first one. Second is the different baptisms. If you're a Passion Translation person, Dr. Simmons says there are seven different translations in the New Testament. I don't like that. I don't agree, which is fine. You can if you want. It's just not my thing. I think what he's actually talking about is the two breakdowns of two different baptisms, which is baptism by water, which in the early church, you were a catechumen until this happened, and then you became catechized, right? The, the idea of being baptized in water and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
So difference, repenting from sins and understanding life, not through the law, but through faith. Different baptisms, baptism by water, baptism by fire. Three, impartation by laying on of hands. This is including healing. This is including, it says all the elders put their hands on Timothy and one Timothy, right? The impartation of leadership, the impartation of healing, the impartation of prophetic words, the impartation of whatever it is. This is all done by laying on of hands. And last is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we understand that resurrection of the dead is, is people coming back to life, not people escaping to somewhere. But I'm not going to get on my soapbox tonight, I promise. But we know this has nothing to do with a secret, 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 special secret coming and going. But this is the rising of the dead. Laura gets me. Thank you, Laura. And so we understand that these basics are not something to be now overlooked because we can oftentimes, especially in charismatic movements, we can become extreme revelation junkies where the basics of our faith now become minute. Uh, let's move on. This is not the idea that we're supposed to necessarily make all the basics overlooked, but they are actually the foundation upon which we can build into maturity. As I understand these things in their fullness, which all these things are attached to my identity and to God's identity, we actually move into the fullness of what we've been designed to be and who we are designed to look like, okay? And this all comes with this idea that Jesus has brought the ability to become righteous. We know in the Old Testament, our righteousness is filthy rags. We know that before Jesus, we could not be brought into the temple. We know that we could offer nothing to be there. But now through Jesus and being pierced by righteousness, we have full access to the fullness of God. There's a foreshadow of who we would be in who King Melchizedek would be, or was, I should say. And the writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 says this, Melchizedek's name, I love this, means king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. Because the name of the city he ruled was Salem, which means peace. And he was also a priest of the Most High God. Now, when Abraham was returning from defeating many kings in battle, Melchizedek went out to meet him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of everything he had won in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. This Melchizedek has no father or mother and no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born and he never died. But his life is a picture of the Son of God, a king priest forever. Imagine being the writer of Hebrews and being like, I'm going to totally blow their minds. Watch this. He had no mother. He had no father. He never lived. He never died. And I'm not going to tell you what happened to him. It's like, the, it's like the worst cliffhanger ever. Right? There are whole, I've read whole like thesis and dissertations just around the idea of who King Melchizedek is. And every time you read it, you're like, Every, it always ends up with, but we'll never know. It's like, this is our ideas, but we'll never know. You know, it's, it's awful. It's like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a, of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. The world may never know. And so this idea is that Melchizedek represents first Jesus. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, which means that his kingdom is built upon the idea of being righteous. And the name of his kingdom is peace. 
And so if this is who Melchizedek is, and Melchizedek is a sign of who Jesus is, we now see that Jesus becomes the king of righteousness. And as we would often call it, he goes by the prince of peace. His kingdom is built upon these two precepts. Why is this so important to us? Because the writer of Hebrews is showing us this prophetic look at who Christ is. He's trying to get into our brains that apart from the Levitical law, and this is why he's not using Aaron and the Levitical priest, he's using King Melchizedek. Apart from the Levitical law, because Jesus did not come from Aaron or the tribe of Levi, Jesus' sacrifice was enough to bring us into the reality of sharing in his dominion, in his domain, in his purpose, which, as, which is as a royal king priest. Is everybody good? Okay. That didn't sound too short, but okay. He breaks this down further as we keep going. This is Romans 7, 5 through 6. <clears throat> because he's trying to, the writer of Hebrews, as he's building upon this, is trying to, he's dealing with, as I told you, this was written to Jews. What he's dealing with here is that Jews are still in this unbelief and this reality that like, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but like, let's do a little bit of the law. You know, let's do like, you know, no bacon and we'll, we'll do some stuff. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to build this narrative out of explaining why this is not true anymore. He goes into Romans 7, 5 through 6. He says, when we were merely living natural lives, the law through defining sin... Oh, I'm in the wrong part here. Okay, let's, uh, yeah, go, go to Hebrews. I'll tell you what, let's actually go back. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to Romans 7, 5 through 6. I, I want to touch on this. Thank you. <laughs> Great job, Brody. You're awesome. I want to touch on this before we move on because, yeah, let's do this. I wasn't going to, but let's do it. The reality um, of the law and why it has to be gone, according to the writer of Hebrews, according to Paul in Romans, is this. That the law in itself is perfect. If you were to look at just the law. Okay, over here, here's the law, it's perfect. But once the law gets introduced to humanity, we become aware that it is unable to produce the righteousness and holiness that we are needing to be in full relationship now with God. Because what did the law do according to Paul? This is uh, Romans. Go ahead, Brody. Go to Romans 7, 5 through 6. This is what Paul says. When we were merely living natural lives, the law, through defining sin, actually awakened sinful desires within us, which resulted in bearing the fruit of death. But now that we have been fully released from the power of the law, we are dead to what once controlled us, and our lives are no longer motivated by the obsolete way of following the written code so that now we may serve God by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is stating this, that once God gives Moses the law, right? Before this, although we are guilty, we don't know what we're guilty of, right? And then when... God presents Moses with the law. What we become aware of is this, is that there are things we're not supposed to do and my humanity kind of only wants to do those things now. Right? 
If you tell your kid this is the one thing in the house you're not allowed to touch, but you can have access to the rest of the house, you know what they're going to be like? I really want to touch that thing. I really want whatever that is over there. And Paul is describing this idea that what the law has done to us is actually teach us now right from wrong and awaken the truth of what sinful desire actually is inside of us. This is what the law has done. The law in itself is perfect. And if upheld would keep someone perfect, it never happened. Right? All of of the Old Testament is proof of that. So the law has awakened, not only awakened us to what is wrong, it's actually enticed us into what is wrong. And now because we've done what is wrong, we now actually receive the wages of sin, which is death. This is a conundrum, right? This is a massive conundrum we have to deal with, Paul is showing us. The writer of Hebrews would sew it up like this. This is Hebrews 7, 18 through 21. Amen. The old, order of, the old order of priesthood has been set aside as weak and powerless. For the law has never made anyone perfect, but in its place is a far better hope which gives us confidence to experience intimacy with God. And he confirmed it to us with his solemn vow. For the former priests took their office without an oath, but with Jesus God affirmed his royal priesthood with his promise saying, the Lord has made a solemn oath and will never change his mind. You are a king priest forever. Amen. Does that not sound good? We're getting close. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. The law is here and it's never made anyone perfect. The law itself, please don't mistake me, the law itself, not a bad thing. The law mixed in with humanity, no good. But at the end of the day, if we begin to ask ourselves, okay, if that's the case, why did God bring the law at all? That's the natural next thought off in our brain. The reason, according to Paul, we don't have a ton of time to get into this. The reason that that God brought the law to Moses is this reality. If Jesus was going to live a sinless and blameless life, there had to be a list of things that would make him sinless or blameless. And so God brings the law to show us what it means to be fully holy and fully righteous, and Jesus does all of it, every bit of it. Thank you. Right? And so the law comes, unfortunately awakens our sinful desires, but also shows that Jesus did what he did in perfection. And Jesus' perfection gives him the declaration that God puts an oath over him that you will be a king priest forever. This feels a little less important to us, and here's why. When the writer of Hebrews is writing this, and really up until close to the, the 300s, even, even during the Council of Nicaea in the, old, in the um, early church, there was still debate going on about Jesus' divinity. Okay, so there's this, there's this thought process going, is, is Jesus like God? This is what the early church is, is kind of dissecting. Is Jesus like God? Is Jesus God? Is the Holy Spirit God? Is Jesus the ultimate prophet sent by God? And so all these things are rattling around throughout the church, throughout 
the New Testament throughout all the different churches in Rome and Philippi and Corinth and all these places. There's this debate almost of who is Jesus? And the apostles are going, he is God, right? And so this solemn oath that the writer of Hebrews is giving is to make this declaration to the Hebrews that who we are saying Jesus is, he is, and will be forever. Jesus is the royal king priest, and he will remain that for all of existence, past linear time. Okay? And so this is why this statement becomes so important to the Hebrew church, is because there's this debate of who is Jesus? And he goes, Jesus is him, and he will be him for as long as there is a him. It's him. Make sense? All right, we're going to finish out in Hebrews here and get to our kind of crescendo of what he's trying to say. This is Hebrews 8, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 7. This is our last massive passage of, uh, well, you can see you've got notes. This is Hebrews 8, 1 through 7. It says this, now this is the crowning point of what we are saying. Okay, this is the, this is, this is, if Hebrews could be broken down in two sections, it goes one to eight and then nine till I think 15, right? This is, this is the end of this moment. Now, this is the crowning point of what we are saying. We have a magnificent king priest who ministers for us at the right hand of God. He is enthroned with honor next to the throne of the majesty on high. He serves in the holy sanctuary in the true heavenly tabernacle set up by God and not by men. Since every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so the Messiah also had to bring some sacrifice. But since he didn't qualify to be an earthly priest, right? Jesus couldn't be an earthly priest because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And there are already priests who offer sacrifices prescribed by the law, he offered in heaven, or the kingdom, right? Those words are synonymous. He offered in heaven a perfect sacrifice. The priest on earth served in the temple that is but a copy modeled after the heavenly sanctuary. A shadow of the reality. I love that. A shadow of the reality. Because the kingdom is actual reality. Goes on. For when Moses began to construct the tabernacle... God warned him and said, you must precisely follow the patterns I revealed to you on Mount Sinai. But now Jesus, the Messiah, has accepted a priestly ministry, which far surpasses theirs. Since he is the catalyst of a better covenant, which contains far more wonderful promises for us. For it is for if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have needed a second one to replace it. No one would have needed a second one to replace it. Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, has been crowned as a magnificent and royal top of the lineage king priest. And he now ministers for us to God. And he has been actually crowned with a royal ministry. He has been given a, a heavenly mission, as it would be said. And if we were to start peeling back and peeling back, we would see very quickly that according to Hebrews 3, as he says, I'm bringing all this together, he's trying to first point out in Hebrews 3 that we are mingled with the Messiah. 
that this now royal mission of bringing the earth into the fullness of what God intended, right, is not only the Messiah's mission, but now, somehow, it seems, through our faith in Jesus, we are now mingled into him and into this mission ourselves. We now carry the combination of king and priest just as Jesus does. He is our royal king priest. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm not, he's our royal king priest up here. But we are now mingled inside of this thing to now take part in now that I live in Chattanooga. I am now an image bearer and a king priest called to bring order and the ministry and mission of Christ to where I am. This is not, please don't mistake me. And I've said this before. This has very little to do about your ability to stand outside of Walmart and say, can I tell you about Jesus? This is not what this is. That's great. You can do that all you want. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Have at it. Pass out tracks every day. Don't bother me. But the reality is greater than this. Jesus comes on the scene and not only ministers in his earthly life, Jesus comes on the scene and shows a whole new way of living, a whole new way of operating. He changes the way the dynamics he, that people have. He changes the way we view money, the way we view relationship, the way we view food, the way we even view matter. He starts walking on water. And then when he gets raised from the dead, he starts walking through walls. Jesus actually changes the ability of how we view how matter works. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big change of how we would view the current state of the world. Like, could you imagine sitting down today with a top-end scientist and then being like, no, like matter can't move through other matter. And you're like, oh, watch this. You just put your hand through a wall. Let's get to that. That'd be fun. And this is how Jesus is redefining not only earth, but how the cosmos works because the cosmos works by him. The scriptures say that the entire cosmos is held up by God, not the other way around. And I am mingled into this person. We read it earlier, but Romans says that I not only inherit all that he, ha all that he has, but all that he is. I am co-mingled into this reality. And it's because I've become the inner sanctuary, right? 1 Corinthians 3.16, it's in the notes. Don't you realize that together you've become God's inner sanctuary? And that the Spirit of God makes His permanent home in you? How radical of a thought that the God who holds the cosmos up, the Jesus who has become royal king and priest has now become ours and we now become his image bearers. I have this statement written down that our current state within our country, our marriages, our families, our businesses, and most importantly, the current state of those that are hurting. The reason all this is suffering is not because the world is just supposed to go to hell in a handbasket. Rather, it has become in its current state because we have decided to stop reigning and start participating. 
right? And oftentimes when we think participation, it, it, I don't think it's coming off the way that maybe you're thinking it is. So I, I want to put it like this. Reigning right now is the ability not only to show good and better values, but it's also the ability to innovate how people see themselves. Reigning is the ability to go, I know you think life has to look like this, but it doesn't. And to that person, that's innovation. Because that's a whole new way of viewing their own genetic makeup. I know you think, because your whole life has been line after line of poverty and poverty and poverty, but you're actually called to something greater to that. Let me show you. That's reigning. Participation looks like this. Everyone else define for me what life is supposed to look like, and that's what I'll do. That includes sin, but that also includes just the way it is, right? Me and Bailey have heard it our whole pregnancy. Oh, get ready. Third trimester is the worst. Get ready. You're going to lose all your sleep when the baby's born. Get ready. It's going to hurt. Oh, you're doing a home birth with no medicine. Good luck. Hope you can walk after. Right? We've heard it our whole pregnancy. Oh, man, but wait till they're two. Wait till they're teenagers. Right? And what people are doing is they're participating in how other people have examined how the world has worked and said, I'm going to choose to participate in what has been. And me and Bailey have been holding up garlic and crosses going, no, we'll, we're, thanks, we'll reign. <laughs> Naminos Christos, whatever it is the Catholics do to get that away from us. Right? We talked about this last week with a couple that was here that if the curse of Adam and Eve is over, that includes pain in childbirth. And our reality is not walking into our birth story going, oh man, it was awful. It's walking in going, yeah, quick and easy. It was great. Loved it. It's fantastic. How are you sleeping? Like a baby. He sleeps eight hours a night. It's awesome. It's great. And when you do that, people are going to go, that's awesome. I'm so happy. Wait till he's two. Wait till he's five. Wait till he's in high school. It's the nature of how we do. We want to participate in how awful things are. We want to participate in how it is. I've used this in my own language. People go, how you doing? I'm great, just super busy. Well, are you busy or do you have purpose? Because if you're busy, you're just looking for artificial significance. But if you have purpose, that's not busyness. That's purpose, that's meaning. That's vocation, that's life, that's existence. Right? And oftentimes what we've done is we've chosen the lesser and we've chosen participation when reigning is fully on the table. This is the idea of what it means to be a king priest, to reign and to rule, to innovate, to create, to make new, to change the way we view things, not to participate in how they have been. Because I think if you currently look at the state of how things have been, they kind of suck. It's a Greek word. They suck. And there's more. Let's go ahead and stand. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, John starts the book and he says this. This is um, 
chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, he says, From John to the seven churches in western Turkey, may the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you from, from him who is, who was, and who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are in front of his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruling king, who rules over the kings of the earth, now to the one who consistently loves us and has loosened us from our sins by his own blood and to the one who has appointed us as a kingdom, let me say this again, to the one who has appointed us as a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion throughout, throughout the eternity of eternities, amen. This reality of reigning as priest oftentimes feels weighty because it feels like a life filled of eternal worship, right? Oh man, we're just gonna be in a room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It feels like, ugh. But a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of reigning has a lot more to do with how you live. Life after life after death, which we talk a lot about. Life on new earth is going to look a lot more like us living than it is us just sinning, cultivating, growing, making new things, participating in art and music. This idea of being a kingdom of priests to serve God is to fully serve God. The only examples of people we had that fully served God are for a little while, Adam, Eve, and then fully Jesus. Adam and Eve ate, Adam and Eve drank, Adam and Eve drank water, whatever you want to say. I wasn't saying it like that. Adam and Eve ate, Adam and Eve drank, they hung out, they participated in, in multiplying, they participated in uh, reigning. Jesus ate, Jesus drank, Jesus hung out with friends, Jesus had intimate relationships, Jesus cried, all this stuff, and yet they were fully serving God. Fully serving God. So fully serving God looks a lot more as a kingdom of priests like reigning than we can even imagine. And this expression, and we're going to deep dive into these things individually, but this understanding and expression of our son, of ourselves as king priests is simply about the way we participate in existing. The ability to live out of your role as a king priest is your ability to participate in existing correctly. That sounds a lot like sinlessness, but it's actually a lot more like love. Tons of people can be sinless for a day. Very few people carry the love of God. And the goal of your life is not sinlessness, but sinlessness can oftentimes be what happens to us when we become baptized fully in love. And, and the reality is this is all tied into love and the whole gospel is tied into love because love's full expression is sharing. And God's ability to share, to love fully means he is fully wanting to share in his reign or as Paul would say, we inherit all that Jesus has and all that he is. It is our participation with God's love in sharing what he has, what he is and what he wants. I want us, and you guys can just go ahead and close your eyes. I just want to make this a really holy moment. I want our kingdom family 
to be a house of people who not only know how to minister to the heart of the Lord and welcome them into the room, but that know how to live life well. I don't want our marriages to go to shambles. I don't want our pregnancies to be hurtful. I don't want us to live in poverty. I want us to carry joy. I want us to carry hope. I want us to innovate in the world. I want us to be creators of art and music and families and joy. I want us to be cultivators of hope and peace. This is your call. This is much more. This is much more than just hold on till the end. This is much more than singing songs about waiting for your homecoming. This is so much more. This is the full expression of living. This is the gospel. Kings who are priests. So Father, tonight I just, through my grace as a leader, I just impart on us this kingdom charge to begin to enjoy and fully live in life, to understand our own roles as kings and priests, to be baptized in the reality that God is calling us to cultivate a life. Let us leave this perverted idea of having to die to our flesh daily, to having to chance death every day, to having to re-kill the old man, to having to choose that we're just going to sin over and over again. And this one thing is never going to leave. And it's just the reality of who I am. But let us move into what God says is true, which is you are a new creation. You have been made whole through the blood of Jesus. Let us begin to cultivate lives as kings and priests in our city, in our homes, in our levels of influence. Tonight we worship you, we praise and exalt your name. We leave empowered tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.